0: This is Guns and Butter.
1: There's something happening, here. Yeah, yeah. What it is There's exactly a man with a gun
2: over there. The Constitution has indeed been superseded. COG plans are still authorized by a proclamation of emergency... That has been extended each year by presidential authority, most recently by President Obama in September 2009.
0: I'm Bonnie Faulkner. Today on Guns and Butter, Peter Dale Scott. Today's show, Continuity of Government Planning. Peter Dale Scott is a poet and author of The War Conspiracy, JFK, 9-11, and the Deep Politics of War. The Road to 9-11, Wealth, Empire, and the Future of America, Deep Politics and the Death of JFK, and Crime and Cover-Up, The CIA, The Mafia, and the Dallas-Watergate Connection, among many other books. He spoke at the Understanding Deep Politics conference in Santa Cruz, California, on May 16, 2010. His talk... Continuity of government planning, the process by which the U.S. Constitution has already been superseded. Among the many topics he addresses are the Doomsday Project, Executive Order 12656 of 1988, National Security Presidential Directive 51 and SPD 51 of 2007, the National Emergencies Act, National Security Directive 55 of September 14, 1982, issued by President Ronald Reagan, counterinsurgency planning called Cable Splicer, and the National Preparedness Review of May 2001. Peter Dale Scott.
2: All right. Today's talk is continuity of government planning, the process by which the U.S. Constitution has already been superseded. What I want to talk about is continuity of government planning. This is what I think should be an immediate priority objective for action that the left and the right can agree about, which is the hijacking of our Constitution by a secret group. We still don't know even who they were, except for two of them, Dick Cheney and Donald Rumsfeld. In July 1987, during the Iran-Contra hearings grilling of Oliver North, the American public got a glimpse of a quote, highly sensitive, close-quote, secret that North had been involved in emergency plans to suspend the American Constitution in the event of a nuclear attack. And I'm going to quote from the hearings And this was printed the next day in the New York Times. But as you listen to it, you may be interested that not one newspaper ever commented on the content of this interchange. Congressman Jack Brooks from Texas. Thank God for Texas. Colonel North, in your work at the NSC, were you not assigned at one time to work on plans for the continuity of government in the event of a major disaster? And then North's lawyer jumped up, Mr. Chairman! And then the senator, Daniel Inouye, who was a Democrat, the chair of the committee, uh, responded in a way that showed he knew exactly what Brooks was referring to. And this is what he said. I believe that that question touches upon a highly sensitive and classified area, so may I request that you not touch on that. Jack Brooks I was particularly concerned, Mr. Chairman, because I read in Miami papers and several others that there had been a plan developed by that same agency, a contingency plan in the event of emergency, that would suspend the American Constitution. And I was deeply concerned about it and wondered if that was an area in which he had worked. I believe that it was, and I wanted to get his confirmation. Nanouye again. May I most respectfully request that that matter not be touched upon at this stage. If we wish to get into this, I'm certain arrangements can be made for an executive session. End of quote. How many people never knew that happened in Iran-Contra? Well, it. You know, it it sort of freaked us at the time, and then it just disappeared from view. So let me go on. We have never heard if there ever was or was not an executive session, or if the rest of Congress was ever made aware of the matter. Reportedly, Congress as a whole was bypassed altogether. Two books say that, that Congress was completely left out of this planning, though key individuals may have known I suspect uh, Lee Hamilton, but I can't prove it. Uh, Jack Brooks was responding to a story by Alfonso Chardy in the Miami Herald. Chardy's story alleged that Oliver North was involved with the Federal Emergency Management Agency, FEMA, in plans to take over federal, state, and local functions during a national emergency. This planning for continuity of government, COG, and that's what I'll say from now on, called for, quote, suspension of the Constitution, turning control of the government over to the Federal Emergency Management Agency, emergency appointment of military commanders to run state and local governments, and declaration of martial law, close quote. To my knowledge, no one in the public, including myself, attached enough importance to the Charty story. Charty himself suggested that Reagan's Attorney General, William French Smith, had intervened to stop the COG plan from being presented to the president. Seven years later, in 1994, Tim Weiner reported in the New York Times that what he called the Doomsday Project the search for, quote, ways to keep the government running after a sustained nuclear attack on Washington close quote was going to be closed down and had less than six months to live. Technically, Weiner's story may have been correct, but it was also very misleading. On the basis of that report, the first two books on COG planning. By James Bamford and by James Mann, books otherwise excellent and well-informed reported that COG planning had been abandoned. They were wrong. What they and Weiner did not report was that under Reagan, the purpose of COG planning had been changed. COG plans now called for suspension of the Constitution, not just after a nuclear war, but for any national security emergency. This was defined in Executive Order 12656 of 1988 as, quote, any occurrence, including natural disaster, military attack, technological emergency, or other emergency, (laughs) that seriously degrades or seriously threatens the national security of the United States. That's the language of the order. In other words, extraordinary emergency measures originally designed for an, an America devastated in a nuclear attack were now to be applied to anything the White House considered an emergency. This expanded goal was envisaged as early as 1984 when according to Boston Globe reporter Ross Geldspan, Lieutenant Colonel Oliver North was working with officials of FEMA to draw up a secret contingency plan to surveil political dissenters and to arrange for the detention of hundreds of thousands of undocumented aliens in case of an unspecified, unspecified national emergency. The plan part of which was codenamed Rex 84, called for the suspension of the Constitution under a number of scenarios, including a U.S. invasion of Nicaragua. Clearly, 9-11 met this definition, any emergency, and we know for a certainty that COG planning was instituted on that day in 2001. What few have recognized is that it is still in effect. The Constitution has indeed been superseded. COG plans are still authorized by a proclamation of emergency that has been extended each year by presidential authority, most recently by President Obama in September 2009. On 9-11, before the last plane had crashed in Pennsylvania, before the last plane had crashed in Pennsylvania, the White House authorized the institution of COG plans. There is no doubt that it was introduced. The 9-11 report confirms it twice on pages 38 and 326. COG plans are also the probable source for the Patriot Act that appeared from nowhere, and also for the Department of Homeland Security's Project Endgame, a 10-year plan to expand detention camps at a cost of $400 million in fiscal year 2007 alone. Uh, The Homeland Security once said that it was to handle all the the illegal immigrants in this country. Well, there are about 12 million of them, so that is an ambitious plan. Uh, And of course, what will work for immigrants will also work for those political agitators that were being talked about in the Rex 84 plan. Uh, The most repressive features of the Bush presidency were apparently all sketched out in COG planning, warrantless surveillance, warrantless detention, even suspension of our right of habeas corpus first granted by Magna Carta in 1215, all planned long before Bush took office. Much is known about COG plans. Much more is not known. We don't know, if, we, we don't know exactly what is in fact at all. We know that the ultra-secret planning began in the 80s under Reagan and North and continued under George H.W. Bush and Bill Clinton. Two of the key planners on the secret planning committee were Cheney and Rumsfeld, the two men who implemented it under 9-11, even though when Clinton was president, both men, both Republicans, were heads of major corporations and were not even in the government at all. Uh, so we should not be surprised that with the implementation uh, came the warrantless detentions that Oliver North had planned for two decades earlier, the warrantless eavesdropping that is their logical counterpart, and the militarization of the domestic United States under a new military command, NORTHCOM. Through NORTHCOM, the U.S. Army now is engaged with local law enforcement to control America in the same way that through CENTCOM, It is engaged with local law enforcement to control Afghanistan and Iraq. We have now become a military district where the army operates uh, the suspension and effect of the Posse Comitatus Acts, which restricted it from doing this until the COG planning was implemented. We learned that COG planning was still active in 2007, when President Bush issued National Security Presidential Directive 51, NSPD 51. This, for the sixth time, extended for one year the emergency proclaimed on September 14, 2001, and empowered the president to personally ensure continuity of government in the event of any catastrophic emergency. Bush announced that NSPD 51 contains classified continuity annexes which shall, quote, be protected from unauthorized disclosure. Under pressure from his 9-11 truth constituents, Congressman Peter DeFazio of the Homeland Security Committee twice requested to see these annexes. The second time, in a written letter signed by the chair of his committee, the Homeland Security Committee, his request was denied. They did not have the clearances to see the annexes.
0: You're listening to author and researcher Peter Dale Scott. Today's show, Continuity of Government Planning. I'm Bonnie Faulkner. This is Guns and Butter.
2: Now, the National Emergencies Act... One of the post-Watergate reforms that Vice President Cheney so hated specifies that, this is in the U.S. statutes, not later than six months after a national emergency is declared and not later than the end of each six-month period thereafter that such emergency continues, each House of Congress shall meet to consider a vote on a joint resolution to determine whether that emergency shall be terminated. It's not that they can do it, may do it. They are required by law to do it. Yet in nine years, Congress has not once met to discuss the state of emergency declared by George W. Bush in response to 9-11, a state of emergency which remains in effect today. Appeals to the Congress to meet its responsibilities to review COG have fallen on deaf ears. Former Congressman Dan Hamburg and I appealed publicly last year, both to Obama to terminate the emergency and to Congress to hold the hearings required of them by statute. But Obama, without discussion, extended the 9-11 emergency again on September the 10th, 2009. There was actually a press conference and some other minor thing was discussed. This was not mentioned or discussed in the press conference. And Congress has continued to ignore its statutory obligations. One congressman explained to a constituent that the provisions of the National Emergencies Act have now been rendered inoperative. How? By COG. If true, this would seem to justify Chardy's description of COG as suspension of the Constitution. Are there other parts of the Constitution that have been suspended? We do not know. And Congress has been told it cannot find out. Now, I don't know if it's my background as a Canadian (laughs) that leads me so focused on this legal question of COG. Plans drafted by a secret committee, including corporation heads not in the government, have provided rules that override public law and the separation of powers that is at the heart of the Constitution. Congress is derelict in addressing this situation. Even Congressman Kucinich, the one congressman I have met will not answer my communications on this subject. What offends me most is that America has become a country where a group of men, including some not even in the government, were able to plan successfully for the imposition of these secret rules. As I see it, the only authorization for the COG planning was a secret decision by President Reagan, NSD 55, of September 14th, 1982, which happens to be the same day in which the emergency was proclaimed 19 years later, uh, which in effect federalized the counterinsurgency planning called Cable Splicer, which Reagan had authorized in California when he was governor there. I submit that the planning by Cheney, Rumsfeld, and others in the last two decades was not confined to a response to an emergency. The 1,000-page Patriot Act, which was dropped on Congress as promptly as the Tonkin Gulf Resolution had been back in 64, is still with us from day to day. Congress has never seriously challenged it, And Obama quietly signed a one-year extension of three controversial sections of it on February 27th of this year. Now, we should not forget that the Patriot Act was only passed after lethal anthrax letters were mailed to two crucial Democratic senators, Senators Daschle and Leahy, who had been questioning it and who subsequently reversed their initial opposition to the bill after receiving the anthrax letters. Someone, we still do not know who, must have planned those anthrax letters well in advance. This is a fact most Americans do not want to think about. Someone also must have planned the new instructions on June 1, 2001, Determining that military interceptions of hijacked aircraft had to be approved at the, quote, highest levels of government. This meant, in practice, in fact, on that day, Cheney and Rumsfeld, because Bush was in a plane circling over the southern United States that had lost its communications system with the rest of the government. The report attributes this order to a JCS memo of June 1, 2001, entitled, Aircraft Piracy and Destruction of Derelict Airborne Objects. But there was no such written requirement before June 1, 2001, and I am informed that it was quietly revoked in December 2001. They went back to the old system where, if a plane went off course... It was just a matter of a routine for uh, jets to take up. Intercept doesn't mean shoot it down. It means just gets on the wings. That now had to be approved by Cheney and Rumsfeld. And, well, you know, most of you know what what a mess all of that was on 9-11. In the road to 9-11, I suggest that the change in the JCS memo came from the National Preparedness Review in which President Bush, in May of 2001, authorized Vice President Cheney, together with, guess who, FEMA, to tackle the task of dealing with terrorist attacks, close quote. Not noticed by the press was the fact that Cheney and FEMA had already been working on COG planning as a team throughout the 1980s and 1990s. Not just the mainstream press, but even excellent authors like James Bamford and James Mann have underestimated the enormity of what happened. Let me quote again from my book, The Road to 9 11. In April 1994, Tim Weiner announced in the New York Times that in the post Soviet Clinton era, the Doomsday Project, as it was known, was to be closed. Weiner added that while some continuity of programs continue under the aegis of Pentagon planners, they are pale versions of the vision laid out by Reagan in 83. They are realizing these requirements are throwbacks to the Cold War, nuclear analyst Bruce Blair said, they are not relevant to today's world. This article persuaded authors James Mann and James Bamford that Reagan's COG plans had now been abandoned because, quote, there was, it seemed, no longer any enemy in the world capable of decapitating America's leadership, close quote. In fact, however, only one phase of COG planning had been terminated, a Pentagon program for response to a nuclear attack. Instead, according to author Andrew Coburn in his biography of Rumsfeld, a new target was found, and now a long quote from Coburn. Although the exercises continued, still budgeted at over $200 million a year in the Clinton era, the vanished Soviets were now replaced by terrorists, exactly. There were other changes, too. In the earlier times, the specialists selected to run the shadow government had been drawn from across the political spectrum, Democrats and Republicans alike. But now, down in the bunkers, Rumsfeld found himself in politically congenial company, the players' roster being filled almost exclusively with Republican hawks. Quote, It was one way for these people to stay in touch. They'd meet, do the exercise, but also sit around and castigate the Clinton administration in the most extreme way, close quote, a former Pentagon official with direct knowledge of the phenomenon told me, that is to say, Coburn, quote, again, the official, you could say this was a secret government in waiting. The Clinton administration was extraordinarily inattentive. They... The Clinton government had no idea what was going on, close quote. Now, Coburn's account requires some qualification. Richard Clark, a Clinton Democrat, makes it clear that he participated in the COG games in the 1990s, and indeed he himself drafted Clinton's Presidential Decision Directive 67 on enduring constitutional government and continuity of government. But COG planning involved different teams for different purposes. I suspect that the Pentagon official was describing the Department of Defense team dealing with retaliation to a terrorist attack. The Pentagon official's description of a, quote, secret government in waiting, close quote, which included both Cheney and Rumsfeld, who were indeed waiting, is very close to the standard definition of a cabal, as a group of persons secretly united to bring about a change of government. In the same era, Cheney and Rumsfeld projected change also by their public lobbying through the project for the new American century for a more militant Middle East policy. In light of how COG was actually implemented in 2001, one can legitimately suspect that however interested this group had been in continuity of government under Reagan, under Clinton, the focus of Cheney's and Rumsfeld's COG planning, the focus was now a change of government. Understandably, there is great psychological resistance to the extraordinary claim that Cheney and Rumsfeld even when not in government, were able to help plan successfully for constitutional modifications which they themselves then implemented when back in power. Most people cannot bring themselves even to believe the second known half of this claim that on September the 11th, 2001, two COG plans overriding the Constitution were indeed implemented. That is why the first two print reviews of my book, The Road to 9 11, were both favorable, both intelligently written, both reported that I had speculated that COG had been imposed on 9 11. No, it was not a speculation. The 9 11 Commission report twice confirms that COG was instituted on the basis of a phone call between Bush and Cheney of which the commission could find no record. No record, I did speculate in my book, because it took place on a secure COG telephone outside the presidential bunker with such a high classification that the 9-11 commission was never supplied the phone records. A footnote in the 9-11 report says, The 9-11 crisis tested the government's plans and capabilities to ensure the continuity of constitutional government and the continuity of government operations. We did not investigate this topic, except as needed to understand the activities and communications of key officials on 9-11, which, in this respect, they did not understand and admitted they did not. The chair, vice chair, and senior staff, that's Lee Hamilton again, were briefed on the general nature and implementation of these continuity plans. The other footnotes confirm that no information from COG files was used to document the 9-11 report. At a minimum, these files might resolve the mystery of the missing phone call which authorized COG. I suspect that they might tell us a great deal more, such as the exercises that took place on that day.
0: You're listening to author and researcher Peter Dale Scott. Today's show, Continuity of Government Planning. I'm Bonnie Faulkner. This is Guns and Butter.
2: What is the first step out of this current state of affairs in which the Constitution has in effect been superseded by a higher, if less legitimate, authority? I submit that it is to get Congress to do what the law requires and determine whether our present proclamation of emergency shall be terminated as required under 50 U.S.C. 1622. Paragraph 2002, that's the part of the U.S. Code which requires this. An earlier, polite, judiciously worded appeal to this effect failed. It may be necessary to raise the issue in a larger, albeit more controversial context, the scandal that a small cabal was able to supersede the Constitution and Congress has failed despite repeated requests to do anything about it. And that's what I hope left and right in this room can agree on, that something should be done to restore our Constitution to the effect that it was in before 2001. Thank you very much. I think if we're going to have questions, the the first question should come from anyone who doubts Questions disagrees with anything that I said in the talk, and then we can get to the more favorable details later. Is there anyone who who thinks I've got it wrong? So right now what you're saying, sir, is that we are under COG government. I don't know what the situation is. I know that a congressman tried to find out what the situation is and was told that he didn't have the authority to do so, even though he and the chairman of the Homeland Security Committee Uh, We're requesting this in writing. Okay. They don't know, I don't know, but we know there are COG annexes being added to the latest we know of were added in 2007. Yes, they are still in force. Thank you.
0: My question is, do you believe that the communism was an accident or... Was it a continuity of a
1: government?
2: Well, that, of course, is a question on my mind, and I don't have an answer. I was very interested in Ellen Brown's talk this morning uh, because I feel that she was absolutely right to draw an analogy between the unknown forces which engineered the fall of Lehman Brothers and the unknown forces uh, which engineered 9-11 and uh, I wanted to ask her and I will this afternoon if I get my place behind the microphone uh, because at one point she said that all these bankers were doing what seemed best to them but at another point she really seemed to be implying that the system had been gamed by some sinister force in order to bring about a profound economic change and that is what I see myself though I can't prove it Uh, as there was a similar political gaming on the 9-11, 2001 side uh, to bring around this change in COG. The most important part, which I haven't developed uh, in this talk, but I I write about it in The Road to 9-11, was this project endgame of the Department of Homeland Security to provide a whole new system of detention camps And the justification for it is almost exactly the justification for the camps that North was working on uh, back in the 1980s. In other words, to deal with the problem of illegal immigrants. But, uh, of course, the uh, detention camps are fungible. They can be used for us as well as for illegal immigrants. And the other thing is Northcom. That was done with almost no debate at all. And by the way, it was also done in my country, Canada. Canada, uh, Britain went through a very similar convulsion almost immediately after 9-11, and then uh, Canada has militarized itself. An American army can now go, march into Canada, or more likely fly into Canada, without any authorization from the civilian government of Canada because of this NORTHCOM, NORAD, planning which is escaping from civilian review so all of this concerns me very much but I can't answer your question we just know there's something out there it's big and nobody's talking about it and the great disappointment was we got a democratic president He's not committed to the Bush agenda he did not vote for going into uh, Iraq uh, but he's extending the cloak of secrecy about this, That's very disturbing I think Yes.
3: You've documented so beautifully that we no longer have a democracy, that the institutions of democracy have been suspended. Others in this conference have made a similar point from other directions, that the vote no longer can be counted in a reliable way, that Congress is under the control of mysterious forces, perhaps in the financial community. And yet, when we think about how to respond to the situation what can we do our habits of being in a democracy are so strong that we fall back on well let's work with congress let's vote this in let's vote that out what are your thoughts about the avenues that remain to us in a situation where democracy no longer is functional
2: well you know i don't think i said at any point in my talk that i think democracy no longer is functional. I do think democracy is still functional. I think that America is, in a sense, like an enormous aircraft carrier. It takes a great many efforts of many, many people to divert it from the course that it had originally been on through 200 years. I also think that there have been forces back and forth doing that through the whole period that America has basically muddled through Uh, But I think it's proof that democracy has not ended. uh, For example, the courts have still fought against some of the decisions which flowed from the products of COG and the Bush administration. And uh, Bush had to come back to Congress, and then it was, of course, very disappointing when a democratic-controlled Congress then passed some of these changes into law. So it's, it's a confused situation, but it's not one where democracy ended and now it's something else. And uh, I do believe that, uh, for example, the federal system of America will help us. Uh, we heard this morning that maybe there are solutions on a state level, which we won't get on a federal level. I, I think there are all kinds of things which can be done, and that's, frankly, the job of the people here, to figure out what we can agree on but I think the top priority is to use uh, the Congress has still some powers, it's only one congressman who said that the National Emergencies Act has been overridden that should be debated if it has been overridden that should come out that's why I think that's the very first thing that has to be done but there's no shortage of things to do if you see what I'm saying in a more general way
3: uh, good morning. Thank you for a great talk. Um, I was wondering the difference between two of the terms that you used. One of them was continuity of government and then continuity of constitutional government, and how much of a difference there is effectively between the two.
2: Thank you. Well, the, the second one was not me. It was a footnote in the 9 11 Commission report. As far as I know, there is only one COG set of plans. We do, I, I will say again, the the common denominator between what Charlie described in 1987 and what actually happened in the first decade of the new millennium is very striking. Uh, Warrantless detention, uh, militarization of government, those two things have clearly happened. And then warrantless, if you're going to have warrantless detention, then really you have to have warrantless eavesdropping too. They go together. So um, I would say that's the core of where the COG stuff was. But beyond that, we don't know how far it goes. We need to find out. And the first way to find out is to get a debate. And, you know, I think before we get it in Congress, we have to get it into the media. And every now and then... uh, I would have thought it was a newsworthy item. You know, the the Constitution has been superseded. Maybe we can persuade some newspaper somewhere that this is actually a piece of news. Uh, And that, as I say, that's what would lead to the next step in Congress and so on. But as to your actual question, I didn't make the distinction. It was a footnote in the 9-11 Commission report, and I don't know why they made that distinction. Yes? Next question. Uh,
4: Thank you. Uh, Comment and a question question. Uh, There is, um, as you know, Peter, a, a wide body of evidence, which I've contributed to in great part, Uh, that the war games, uh, emergency response exercises, whatever you want to call them, on the morning of 9-11, were in fact on a scenario of a multiple hijack scenario, which many people don't know has now been acknowledged in a book called Touching History by Colonel Marr himself, who was the operational director of NORAD, a northeast sector, on the morning of 9-11. So uh, the bottom line is there's considerable evidence that there was in fact a COG exercise on the morning of 9-11 that was a an exercise or simulated response to a multiple hijack scenario exercise. And when the exercise scenario went live so did COG. That in effect it was a way to trick um, COG into becoming actual. That's my comment and I could follow up offline with you Peter on that, the evidence for it. And my question is I find it very strange that the uh, cog CO COP, uh, Continuity of Government, Continuity of Operations, uh, wasn't uh, instituted until the 14th, when September 11th happened three days before. Can you explain that?
2: Uh, I I can't see, but I'm very sure we just heard from Barbara Honegger, who uh, has really contributed a great deal to clarifying things in the past. And in response to her comment, she might have mentioned that FEMA, which was the institutional support for all of the COG planning through the 80s and 90s, and was also the institutional support for Cheney's task force, which in May, presciently, was appointed to deal with a terrorist attack. That was smart thinking, you know. If we're going to have a terrorist attack in September, better have Cheney working on it back in May. FEMA was also in charge of that, and of the multiple games exercises... Uh, of, of which I think many are relevant, not just the one you mentioned, uh, FEMA was directly charged with some of those exercises as well. So there is a kind of FEMA continuity to this, which lasts until uh, New Orleans and the hurricane and the total... Some people think actually that FEMA was supposed to fail at New Orleans because now... FEMA doesn't deal with these emergencies anymore, the the U.S. Army does. And we had, like, forest fires in Southern California a couple of years ago, and uh, President Bush flew out with the head of NORTHCOM and said, I have good news for you, NORTHCOM is here to help you uh, with the forest fires. Well, so that we have institutionalized the use of the U.S. Army in exactly the kind of way that the Posse, Tatus Act was intended to uh, deny. Now that's all in response to your comment and the question is why did they wait until the 14th? They they didn't wait until the 14th. They instituted the COG on the same day and uh, immediately, uh, for example, Cheney would not leave Washington until Bush came back. That was a COG provision. Bush spent most of the next seven weeks inside a mountain up uh, at a COG base on the Maryland border next to Camp David. Um, So it happened immediately. The authorization was three days late. And I guess they were deciding, what do we do first, invade Afghanistan or invade Iraq? Oh, no, we won't. we won't invade Iraq right away. Let's put off Iraq. We have to get better evidence about WMD and about anthrax and all those things. The legalization of it, if that's what it was, I'm not sure it did legalize it, it was not a high priority. I think they had a great deal to do that weekend, and, uh, and uh, they, they, they dealt with it on the 14th, but that is the formal in effect, the emergency was declared with the imposition of COG, but the document saying this is an emergency was signed on the 14th. You're listening to author
0: and researcher Peter Dale Scott. Today's show, Continuity of Government Planning. I'm Bonnie Faulkner. This is Guns and
4: Butter. I have just one disagreement with you, Peter, which is whether we need to get back to the Constitution or to the Articles of Confederation, when states still had sovereignty and could issue their own currency, and before a group of merchants at a convention pulled a fast one and convinced the people to give up their state sovereignty in return for an empty promise of paper that said, trust us, form a centralized government and trust us. In my radio episode, Was the Constitution an Act of Treason?, I quote Patrick Henry and the other anti-federalists like the Judge Brutus, who talk about how once a centralized government is formed, it will become this monster that the people will never again be able to regain control of, and everything they've said has come true and more
2: well half the room is applauding that and half the room is sitting silent uh, I will give you my own response to that which but by the way I explore this in my poetry uh, for years I followed people like Ezra Pound who thought that the great villain of the founding fathers was Hamilton because he was the man who forced in a central private bank which Jackson then uh, overruled years later um, I, I like America more than you do, I think. I'm a Canadian. I haven't uh, sworn allegiance to anybody, and I'm not likely to it's among the governments I've been presented so far. But uh, I think that uh, taken... As I look at things in the perspective of world history, and I think that what was achieved by the Founding Fathers, both in the 1770s and also in the 1780s, was nothing short of miraculous. And I think there was a real danger that if the states had not come together, uh, they would have all got hopelessly mired in debt and would not have been able to take off. That doesn't mean I'm against uh, the states' uh, uh, movement now. I'm very interested in it. I would not have been for the right of states to secede in the 1850s and 60s because then I think the most important issue in this country was slavery. And I, th- I say thank God that uh, we got rid of slavery. I'm sorry that so many million people had to die for that to happen. Uh, But today, the the issue of slavery is not attached to the question of states' rights. I'm very interested in the states' rights movement. It may be that uh, secession is the route to go. I'm not ruling that out at all. Uh, But to, to be interested in secession now doesn't mean that I have to say a mistake was made In uh, in the 1780s, because I think uh, the you know counter history is infinitely debatable, but I think that the only way America, myself, I think the only way America could survive and develop the way it did as a place of hope for people all over the world was by creating a kind of huge market uh, possibility that was created and that if we'd all struggled along on the state level, uh, I don't know if the states would have survived at all, frankly. I think Britain would have come back and might have won. American history is fascinating because of all the currents and countercurrents. But that's why I'm hopeful, by the way. Yes, we've had, a, we've had a very bad time right now. It's not the only bad time in American history. I mean, you go back to the 30s, and here you had the big banks uh, conspiring... Uh, to get General Smedley Butler to, uh, in effect, overthrow the president. And uh, Smedley Butler, as a good American general, wouldn't play along. So uh, that's the sort of thing that can still happen in our present situation. We should take heart from the fact that America has been so challenged in the past. We should take heart from the fact that at the time of the Spanish-American War we had a powerful anti-imperialism league which was headed by Andrew Carnegie, the top capitalist in the country. Capitalism is a force that should be opposed to what's happening right now in Afghanistan. Give us back our civilian economy (coughs) so that we can produce other things in this country besides tanks and planes
5: and guns. Professor Scott, I'm proud as a Canadian to be in your presence and with a great Canadian We are both citizens of a constitutional monarchy. And this 9-11 movement is a global movement incorporating peoples around the world with many forms of government. Um, And uh, that constituency, read your work around the world, and you are um, strategists for not only a movement within the United States, but an international movement. Uh, So maybe you could conclude your wonderful um, views here with some uh, ideas about how we could handle this internationally. I I think this movement in a way, it has to come from outside the United States because it's an international matter and it affected all the countries. We had 25 Canadians killed in the Twin Towers. We're in Afghanistan because of this fraudulent interpretation of 9-11. The global implications are so profound and brought in their scope, and we need an international strategy as well as a, an American strategy.
2: Well, I agree with you. I want to say this by way of comment on this really excellent, excellent presentation we got from Ellen Brown this morning. I don't know if she's in the room, but it was wonderful. You're an example of think globally, act locally, and sort of saying, let's see what's happening at the BIS. By the way, the president of the BIS in the interwar years back in 1931 was Richard Magara, the grandfather of Richard Magara Helms, who became the head of the CIA. Uh, And the CIA often, I think, acted in ways which were more beneficial to the BIS than they were to the American government. Uh, But I was left with a feeling that California is a big state. We all say it used to be the fifth largest in the economy. We'll be lucky if we come out being the 20th largest economy. Uh, But it's big. But can North Dakota really be a solution to the enormous problems that you raised? I think it's not enough to act locally. I don't disagree with anything you said about what we should do, But I think we have to be thinking about globalization, what is bad about it, but also what is good about it, what it is that we want to preserve and what we want to change. And I think that 9-11 was a a significant event in the history of top-down globalization. When all these people go and protest in Pittsburgh or Seattle or whatever it is, i 'm disappointed to see that they they don 't like globalization. there are aspects of what 's happening in the world which are wonderful I mean the, the more and more and by the way americans Americans are playing a very constructive role and not i 'm not talking about the american government i 'm talking about all kinds of people who go to be teachers, peace corps, whatever, and affect their countries. They go to even Vietnam for example which uh, After all the damage that we inflicted on that country, Vietnam, I think, is a better country because of the good Americans who were there. You don't hear about uh, the International Volunteer Force and so on. People who were there at the same time as the U.S. Army and have left a humanizing, civilizing influence in Vietnam that makes it significantly different in some ways from China and Cambodia where uh, the Americans did not play that role, so what I think we need in the world is bottom-up globalization to balance the top-down globalization. I'm not an economist, so I, 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 but I think you know you you didn't come up with a solution really for the BIS and the Ron Paul people in general who just want to pull America back into America and sort of let go of the rest of the world are going to leave unsolved what is, by your analysis, really the heart of the problem, which are these forces coming from outside the country. Uh, If uh, we just uh, just stay with the new status quo and we have on the one hand uh, a state bank in North Dakota and we have these forces unchecked coming from BIS and uh, the the gnomes of Zurich and, and so on and so on, uh, who's going to win? Is it going to be North Dakota or is it going to be the Gnomes of Zurich? I think it'll be the Gnomes of Zurich. Uh, also, I kept thinking what you were saying, and it was so sensible, uh, reminded me of what social credit people were saying uh, in the 1930s as a response to the Depression then. We actually had a social credit government in uh, in Canada, one of the very few. Uh, but it turned out that the province of Alberta couldn't successfully take on the international banking system. It, it it failed, and the Social Credit Party was defanged and turned into just another political party playing the usual game. So um, in response to the question, yes, I think there has to be uh, a global response to 9-11. And I, I do actually maybe I'm guilty of some subjective uh, blindness here, but I think that Canada, particularly, uh, should uh, contribute to a global 9-11 movement because I think that next to America itself, uh, we are probably the most impacted country. The fallout from 9-11 has created a constitutional crisis in, in Canada already. And that's before we confront the issue, which is just amazing to me, that uh, quietly the American military has acquired the right to move into Canada whenever it sees an emergency and can persuade the Canadian military, who have always agreed with them about everything, uh, that that 's okay, and that what Ottawa might think about it is not relevant, I should think that would be an important political issue in Canada and I think also in Europe, as they learn more and more that the indebtedness of Greece it comes from having bought all these junk uh, derivatives from American banks, and that the bailing out that is being provided isn 't a lot of it's not going to stay in Europe that come back, and the, and the euro is actually going down now in response to this crisis. I think that all of that should be part of the large way of thinking about this crisis. So, short answer, I totally agree that on two ways we need to have a, a large view of what's happening. We mustn't be too narrowly focused on nanothermate and free fall. We should think of what 9-11 did to the world, not just to the Constitution of America. And also, we should use this to help build a global response because countries like Japan... uh, uh, Japan has uh, not as big a crisis, but a crisis which can be linked to 9-11 in the same way that Canada's political crisis clearly can be linked to 9-11. So uh, my answer... I should have summed up my answer to your question by saying yes.
1: There's something happening here. Yeah, yeah. What it is ain't exactly clear. There's a man with a gun over
0: there. You've been listening to Peter Dale Scott. Today's show has been Continuity of Government Planning. Peter Dale Scott is a poet and author of The War Conspiracy, JFK, 9-11, and the Deep Politics of War, The Road to 9-11, Wealth, Empire, and the Future of America, Deep Politics and the Death of JFK, and Crime and Cover-Up, the CIA, the Mafia, and the Dallas-Watergate Connection, among many other books. His next book will be Fueling America's War Machine, Deep Politics and the CIA's Global Drug Connection, forthcoming in fall 2010. Today's show was from his presentation, Continuity of Government Planning The Process by Which the U.S. Constitution Has Already Been Superseded, at the Understanding Deep Politics Conference in Santa Cruz, California, on May 16, 2010. Visit Peter Dale Scott's website at www.peterdalescott.net. That's peterdalescott.net. Thanks to Hamook and Ken Jenkins of 911tv.org for today's audio. Guns and Butter is produced by Bonnie Faulkner and Yara Mako. To leave comments or order copies of shows, Email us at BL Faulkner at Yahoo.com. That's b-l-f-a-u-l-k-n-e-r at Yahoo.com. Or call 510 848 6767, extension 628. Hey, yo, these
1: are some times that we- A revolution, which is the evolution of the mind. If you see- Trying to steal your life, you know what I'm saying? Look what within yourself for peace, give thanks, live life, and release. You dig me?